I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. I'm Joel. I'm Kim. And on today's Tour Finals group stage catch-up, Dominic Team makes it two wins out of two. Sitsipas saves a match point and survives to fight another day. And Novak Djokovic starts off with a comprehensive victory against Diego Schwartzman. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Kim, we are heading through the group stages at the ATP Tour Finals in London. I think it's fair to say that today has been a a very dramatic day on the tennis court. And I think, I mean, would you agree? I think it's genuinely given us probably one of the best matches ever seen at, at the O2 Arena. Absolutely. I mean, I, I assume you're referring to Rafa Nadal, Dominic Team there, Joel, which we had this afternoon because... That wasn't bad either, to be fair, but I was talking about uh, Sissipas Rublev. <laughs> yeah, well, that first set, 19 minutes, best set I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, to be fair, yeah, the match this evening was also good, you know, uh, from set two onwards. We had a very dramatic finish just now, but um, let's begin with with the uh, Rafa against team match because definitely the match of the tournament so far, I think it'll be hard to beat, actually. I know it was straight sets, but it's probably the best quality straight set match you, you could possibly see. I mean, the, both of them were playing such good tennis. I mean, if you look at the winner to, you know, unforced error ratio, both positive in terms of winners, which, you know, just goes to show that they were not missing much. And, you know, they really had to dig deep to kind of overcome the, the, you know, the opponent. And it really did rest on a couple of points here and there. And, you know, Rafa, I think will be really pleased with his form, but, but also slightly disappointed. He didn't take his set point chances in the first set and didn't make the most of being a breakup in the second set as well. It was an absolutely fantastic match. One of the matches of the season. Who knows? We might even get that in the final. I think that quality just shows you the fact that we've had a, I think, almost kind of a pause in the tour. And we've had kind of limited availability in, in terms of tournaments. I think it's enabled a match like this to happen because we've had Dominic Team, we've had Rafael Nadal come into this event fit and firing. And they've just put on a, yeah, a fantastic match where... You know, the only the only shame about it, it was the fact that there was no crowd there. But in in a weird sort of way, that that made that match. I think it just made it even more amazing. The fact that they were able to put on one of the best matches of of the year without a crowd, and I mean, Dominic Team was just he was just fantastic. I mean, he played for me. I mean, I think he said it himself. He played a level of tennis that, I mean, in his words, he felt that that was possibly better than what he was playing at the US Open. So it just shows you, you know, how, you know, how high he was pushed by 
by Nadal. And yeah, it really did come down to, you know, well, fundamentally, it just came down to two tie breaks. And Dominic Team's record in tie breaks this season, it's been, it's been exemplary, hasn't it? It has. I mean, when he played Rafa earlier in the year at the Australian Open in the quarterfinals, Dominic Team won all three tie breaks in that match to, to win. You know, in the, um, the US Open as well, you know, against Zverev in the final, Dominic Team won those tie breaks. Uh, also against Zverev in the semi final in the AO, he won the tie break. I mean, there's a lot of real key matches at slam level and now, you know, the tour finals. When push comes to shove, as it does in a tie break, he it's very hard to bet against him right now. Um, he just seems to be getting the job done. And uh I mean he he did throw in a double fault in the uh the tie break in the first set today and, and Rafa had two set points, but it well, you know, he couldn't he couldn't take them and uh Dominic team hung in there and, and took his chances and you know, I mean he's got to be really Please, so he's now through to the semi-finals because Sitspas has beaten Rublev tonight. So he can kind of sit back, relax a bit. You know, he's got his last match against Rublev, which you know is a dead rubber. It doesn't matter. I, I, I'm sure Team will be trying to win it so he can, you know, go for the title without losing. But um, yeah, he's in really, really good form, and you know, we saw him in excellent form against Sitspas in the first first match on Sunday as well and that was a reverse you know score of of last year's final you know kind of team got got his revenge over over Sitsipas with a three-set win um and you know that was a great match as well and and just kind of goes to show that you know I mean both of those players you know playing well so far Sitsipas has come into this event a bit dodgy on his form you know he'd lost kind of the last three matches straight which I think is his worst kind of run of losses in a long time. But, um, you know, he's got the job done today against Rublev. And it'll be interesting, actually, to see Sitspas against Rafa um, on Thursday. Obviously, they'll be battling it out for that second place in the semifinals. Who do you think? Do you think Rafa's form today indicates that he's the favourite going into that match? If he can play like he did today against team, surely that's a higher level than what we've seen from Sitspas, would you say? completely agree i think you know although you know nadal was defeated today i think you know again he said in his press conference he actually was really happy with his performance and you know it almost caught me a little bit off guard with you know, how well he was playing given you know what his form was like in in paris and again it's all credit to him that he's just able to he's just able to raise his game you know when it matters it it was just on an occasion today that <laughs> team found a, a higher level and you know, just kind of talking about tie breaks, just really interesting because I do think, you know, when you get to that very top level where, you know, it might come down to a few points here and there, tie breaks are really obviously a big part of that. And, you know, we've spoken about, you know, on the podcast about, you know, Novak Djokovic's uh, tie break record this season, it being, you know, one of the, you know, the best on tour. And, you know, he, the fact that he kind of spoke about, you know, when he gets into a, a tie break that he, he minimizes his risk and kind of asks the questions of the opponent. Well, can you, can you beat me? And, and I think, you know, I think almost kind of Dominic team is taking a, he's almost taken a page, I think, out of Novak Djokovic's book where, when it comes to that tie break, yeah, he's willing to, you know, not put everything on the line and at the same time put, almost kind of put that pressure back onto his opponent to be like, you know, I'm going to be very, very solid. What can you do to, to win this? And it feels like, you know, with, with Dominic team and the way he's kind of going about his, the tie breaks, it's almost like, you know, he, he feels like he can make his opponent lose it 
and therefore he doesn't feel like he has to win it. And that is obviously doing you know really well for him because I mean five consecutive tie breaks now he's won against Nadal. That's got to feel that's got to feel pretty good, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. And actually, he's now won three of the last four matches against Rafa. Um, so you know, against like Rafa and, and the other members of the big three, actually against Djokovic, he's, it's two and two since I think last year. So, you know, and, and he's got a winning record over Federer as well. So if you look at team versus the big three over the last year and a bit, you know, he's up, he's, um, he, he's got a positive record and, you know, that ultimately is a, one of the factors that will define, you know, your your level, your form, how how great you could be. Um, I mean, just think if the big three weren't around, um, would Dominic team just be dominating? I don't know. That's that's maybe a question for another day. Um, but certainly, we've seen him in in fine form so far this event. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because you know the the big three are aging, and it and it feels like you know Dominic team, you know, is in the peak of his powers at the moment, and it feels like he's going to he is the first player to be able to kind of you know sense that that chink in the armor and you know it, it was it's not just been today as you said it's been over the last 18 months or so his record against the, the big 3 has been has been exceptional um you know particularly i think in best of 3 format on on the tour less so at grandstand but certainly i think that has come with with time and yeah he's it's it's really interesting to see you know can he break you know can he can he get to you know i think next season you know he will be looking at you know potentially um i mean i've not looked at kind of the the rankings but he could potentially look to break that sort of top two maybe even you know, look, um, you know, now he's got the, you know, the monkey off his back in terms of winning a grand slam. Maybe world number one can become a realistic, a realistic target for him. But, um, you know, at the moment, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, talking about that match with Nadal. I mean, you know, we were going into this tournament talking about Djokovic as the, the favorite. I mean, after that match, Kim, I mean, do you think, do you see team now as the favorite? I mean, given the level, the level we've seen from him against, you know, an opponent in in the you know at, you know in the caliber of of a Rafael Nadal. Yeah, I'm envisaging seeing Novak Djokovic and Dominic Team in the final on Sunday afternoon because if they both head up and win their respective groups, they won't meet in the semis. So I, I'm kind of predicting that that will be the final. I think they are looking set to meet, and and I'm I'm there for that final. I think that would be. A great match, especially if, you know, they're both playing as well as we've seen so far from them. And um, yeah, Dominic team. I mean, fantastic stuff from him. What do you make, uh, Joel, of of Andre Rublev so far this this tournament? You know, we've seen him just now um, with a very interesting match against Sitsapas. You know, the first set gone in 19 minutes. And I thought, the oh, was no. all over the place, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? It was really not great. And uh, I thought, you know, that would be that's that was his third set in a row that he'd lost because he lost in straight sets to Rafa on Sunday. And and you know, understandably, Rublev, you know, was quite nervous. You could really tell that he wasn't his attitude wasn't great. Like he was obviously felt, I think, a bit out of his depth. You know, you come into this event, top eight in the world. I think there's got to be a bit of imposter syndrome. I don't know if I was him, I'd be thinking, oh, do I belong here? I mean. I, his results do show that, you know, he's won five titles. He's won the most matches of anyone this year. But, you know, you, 
it's it's your first time at this stage. You've got to be thinking, oh gosh, you know, I, I really want to impress, but I feel like there's a lot of weight on my shoulder. So I thought what he was able to do tonight against Sitsipas was really impressive to be able to come back. And he had a match point uh, in that last set tie break. He double faulted on match point. Not great, but to get to that position where you actually had the match point, I thought was very impressive considering the first set that we saw. It's it's an interesting one because yeah I you know, I was watching the you know his match against Nadal and I think like literally it was just like six games in he threw his racket and you could tell that you know he was he was feeling the pressure from the event I actually thought you know the fact that there was no crowd there it was going to help him in the sense that he could just treat this like a you know another tournament but perhaps you know the fact that you know I think it was always going to be a hard matchup going in against Nadal as your first match. Maybe if he had had Sissipas, um, you know, as his first match, it might have been a, a different story. But um, yeah, I always kind of think with with Rublev, and I think this, this kind of event is almost kind of showing it, is that, yes, he is very good when, you know, his forehand is all guns blazing and his, his serve is, is all guns blazing. And, you know, he can really kind of be on the front foot in terms of an attacking player. But I do wonder if he has a plan B or, you know, whether he needs to, you know, that's the next thing. It's like his, it feels like his plan A is, is very good. And it's, you know, it's won him five titles this season and, you know, players have not been able to kind of cope with it. But when that doesn't, is not working, you know, like in the, you know, the, for example, the, in the in the Nadal match, it's like it does he have a you know a plan a plan B kind of up his sleeves, and that for me is p- potentially where I think he needs to you know look at um, kind of improving his game. And as much as it is about kind of attacking, I still think there's a bit of work potentially he could do in terms of defending and, and almost kind of biding his time until he can sort of be the aggressor. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is his, it is his first time at the the tour finals. I think we're, you know, it would have been wildly ambitious to think, you know, he was going to go and go and win it. But I think he, this has certainly kind of proved. Look, I think it's given him an, an eye in terms of right. The, for me, this is the you know the next jump for me is going to be to a level where someone like you know Sissipas is where Sissipas was you know, maybe kind of last season. And 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 he's going to need to use that off season, I think, to think about, okay, how do I, how do I make that leap? Because it still feels like, you know, he's still, you know, perhaps a step behind that sort of chasing pack behind the, behind the good, the, sorry, behind the big three. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it just makes what Sitspas did last year actually quite impressive because it was his debut at this event last year and obviously he went on to win it. So, but yeah, absolutely in agreement with regards to Rublev. Um, I certainly think he needs like a big breakthrough win at a slam against one of the big three. I think he's still got to prove that at the real like higher echelons, he can, you know, cope and and defeat the real top players it's all very well being consistent and winning the 250s and the 500s exactly but it's a whole different kettle of fish um i feel like i say kettle of fish all the time joel uh, <laughs> i need a different expression <laughs> um but it's nice to see riblev you know i think gaining the experience that inevitably he will he will need to, to get to that point just on that i just i do think you know the watch out for riblev next season will be if he won't want to be known as a you know a, a two fifty sort of five hundred sort of bully. He will want to be the you know he will want to be someone who can 
you know, challenge for, you know, a master's title or, you know, go into a semi-final of, of a Grand Slam. And I think that will be the next sort of transition for him is, is how he can you know, make sure that he can, um, he can really kind of, compete at the you know at the at the very at the very at the very top of the game um i mean just moving on to sissipas as well i thought um you know he's had a thing a kind of an interesting you know couple of matches i mean his first match again i was kind of watching against team was three sets that was a repeat of the final last year um it was interesting to hear in his his speech actually that i think he of all the the eight players at the event i feel like he is the most affected by not having a crowd there i feel like he plays off the energy of the crowd more so than than other players and perhaps you know obviously there's no no crowd there at the moment and perhaps at the moment he's struggling to kind of come to terms with that and uh, you know and find find that energy from from another source absolutely yeah i mean it is a bit of a, a soulless arena you know they usually it's what eighteen thousand fans i think in the o2 and there's like 50 people watching and I mean, in some ways, it can add an, an intensity to the tennis that perhaps you wouldn't get with a big crowd. Like this afternoon with Rafa and team, it was almost like it could be complete silence and you're just watching and kind of gasping at, you know, what they're performing and, and giving us. But, you know, in other ways, it, yeah, I mean, it is sad. Obviously, there can't be fans there. But I think... Yeah, I guess it is going to affect others more than more than some, and it will also benefit you know people who who perhaps would feel the, the crowd you know making them more edgy than they would normally be. So um, yeah, I mean it's a shame, like we've said before, that the last year at the O2, you know, we don't have a big send off, but um, you know, and also I think they were saying you know um, when I've been watching that the. the the tennis you know how the temperature of the arena is so much colder because you don't have I guess all that body heat in there so it's also affecting you know a bit how the court's playing so you know that will also perhaps benefit some and not others just talking about that like that sort of acclimatization I guess to the the conditions it was also interesting to hear team talk about in his words, bubble life, um, bubble life on the on the tour, bubble life at the event, and kind of talking about the fact that this enforced bubble um, and adapting to it is, in his words, kind of exhausting. And you know that almost for me, it sounds like it's that's you know expending energy, getting used to bubble life. You know, it has to be put aside. Um, you know, versus energy you know being used on on a tennis court. So. It's interesting to I think that you know going into this sort of climate where or sorry this event where it is a group stage it is around robin you're here you're not you know it's not just a knockout the fact that you're going to have to be there on kind of on site maybe that is draining players or um you know maybe that is you know having an impact on on players that you know fans might not might not have realized might not even even kind of appreciated because you know we're seeing these you know matches play out on the court and they're very sort of physical battles i mean the team nadal match today was almost kind of an, an out you know an all-out war but um it's interesting to hear that kind of off court that almost kind of feels a like a battle as well a battle a battle with the bubble well yeah i mean you think they'd be used to bubbles by now but um <laughs> i think it's weird here like because the hotel is literally um a few minutes walk away um so it's almost like they really are working from home like there's there's no commute you know they're right next door 
and which which is great um I, for some maybe who who wants to just really focus on the tennis but I guess some players prefer to be able to like obviously go out in the you know, have a nice dinner to relax and maybe take in some of the sights. And, you know, the players that have been here before, perhaps they, they quite enjoyed getting the, the Thames Clipper, you know, to and from the, <laughs> the venue. But I thought it was silly. I was reading um, that the players have to be driven to and from the hotel, despite that it being like a short walk away. And I don't know if that's um, like for security reasons or to maintain the bubble, you know, in case a member of the public just sort of intercepts. But um yeah, I thought that was quite an interesting point. But uh, yeah, it's certainly um, very different to previous tour finals. And um, yeah, we're going to take a quick break now. And then we'll be back in the second half and we're going to be discussing Group Tokyo. So join us then. This is The Passing Shot. You're joined by Joel and Kim, and we're going to move on to talk about the other group, Group Tokyo 1970, uh, where we've only had one day's play uh, from this group so far, Joel. Um, so we had Djokovic, Schwartzman, and Medvedev Zverev on Monday. Let's start perhaps with Novak Djokovic, who was the afternoon match and was very impressive. He defeated Schwartzman 6-3, 6-2, straight sets victory, his sixth straight win over Schwartzman. Um, I think most people were probably expecting that result. Um, and I mean, Djokovic was very impressive, but perhaps not challenged in the way that he will be in his next match against Medvedev. Schwartzman, I think, had the you know got first blood. I think you you know went two one up and and broke, but that was pretty much as as good as it got. And he played, I think, a pretty good first set. But you know, Djokovic was able to come away with it, and you know, the kind of it just kind of it went from there. I think you know what I think what we all kind of realised. I think I think particularly I noticed with Schwartzman is that he doesn't get as many free points, you know, particularly with his serve than kind of the other players other players do and as a result of that when you're playing someone who's like you know one of the best returners in the game um it just makes it you know it just makes it a very very tough battle and um you know it, it was uh i mean the head-to-heads i think now six and zero in favor of Djokovic it's just it's just a very it was just a very good easing in to the um to the finals for, for Djokovic and um he really kind of did look it did. He did look very good. It didn't look like you know there wasn't very much any sort of sloppy play like we kind of saw. I th- I felt kind of in in Vienna, um, and I think actually I I actually think what was most interesting about this match was the press conference because there were kind of a lot of a lot of kind of topics being discussed, and and one that has kind of emerged this week is um, a conversation we have many many times actually, Kim. We. The thing that surprises me most, actually, is that I don't feel like we've actually discussed this issue head on on the podcast. But um, it's the talk of the town at the moment with players, and that is the the best of three best versus best of five set format, which um, it it feels like it's got players completely split down the middle because Djokovic is in favour of of best of three. You know, Nadal and Federer are you know much more uh, wanting best of five. Um, it was interesting to hear, yeah, the, this kind of talk in the, in the conference about, yeah, kind of Djokovic, I think maybe aware about player safety, um, that he feels like that potentially is a reason that, you know, you would want to have 
best of three kind of uniformly across the across the tour, including at Grand Slams. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I'm sort of, <laughs> am I a bit suspicious that he's advocating best of three because he wants to, you know, really prolong his career so he can rack up like 30 slams or whatever. Um, cause it'd be a lot easier to do that, you know, as your body is aging, if you're only then playing best of three. I personally don't think it will be changed, um, anytime soon. I think there's, I think, I don't know if the, it would be like 50-50 in terms of whether you think it should change or not. But I still think the majority of kind of core tennis fans like the tradition of best of five and the kind of extra gravitas that, you know, inevitably playing longer matches, you know, has, you know, at a slam, it, it just means so much more. And, you know, yes, player safety, but you know, player fitness has, you know, vastly improved, you know, sports science is coming on leaps and bounds. And, you know, today's bunch of players are so much fitter and, you know, have so much more resilience and, um, you know, better physiques and, and fitness than like long ago, you know, days, you know, days gone past. And I don't know, we, we can adapt and innovate. I mean, I don't know if this is because of a COVID concern, but I, I don't know. I, I still like best of five myself at, at a Grand Slam and I don't want to see them change it. I think there's an argument for, I mean, if anything, so we, this is another argument, is that at Masters events, you should introduce best of five in the final to, um, you know, like they used to have. There's there's also arguments to, to go the other way and then bring that back. So I guess it's a sliding scale as to where you kind of want to sit as to how, <laughs> how, um, I don't know how hardcore you you perhaps want these matches to be, but oh, they could, Joel. Why don't they have you know Patrick Moratuglu and then idea and 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 play bizarre set score lines like like the the events uh, over the summer? Why not do that? <laughs> it is a very polarizing issue amongst players. I think it's a polarizing issue amongst fans as well. Um, yeah, it was interesting to kind of hear kind of again kind of these conversations happening on on social media um you know I, I think for me you know yeah best of five set tennis is what makes kind of grand slam tennis and you know it, it feels right it feels right that grand slams do have a best of five i'm i am i'm sort of kind of coming around to this idea and and again it was kind of danny valverde one of them you know, Andy Murray's former coach on, on Twitter kind of talking about the fact that, you know, is it time to see best of five back on the tour proper in the giving the feeling that, you know, with all these kind of younger players coming up, younger players who are fitter, um, should we be getting them more experience of best of five set tennis that doesn't happen um, at Grand Slam? So, you know, almost they can be blooded on the tour in kind of best of five you know, in, uh, you know, in a final setup, for example, um, to give them experience. So once they arrive at the ground of Grand Slams, they can use that experience to help them uh, perform better. Um, it, uh, yeah, I think there's there's lots of, you know, there's lots of different ways to cut it. It is a very kind of popular conversation. It always, it was always one as well that always seems to pop up, I think, at the end of the season when we always kind of have this sort of reflective period, I think, with kind of, press conferences where you know the matches might have been a bit bit routine and, and you know it, it feels like a very kind of you know it feels like you know with you know particularly at the tour finals it's a very kind of contemplative 
contemplative stage and and this naturally is one of the you know the the first first topics of of conversation to come up yeah and obviously this year the the levels of tiredness amongst players will be a lot less than previous years so um I I don't know if that would have any have any impact on to how they currently feel, but yeah, I, I think that's a good point about like the young players being exposed to best of five in some way before you know um, just to kind of get them a bit more equipped for grand slams. I mean, there's always going to be players cramping in a fifth set, isn't there, Joel? Even if you give them you know as much exposure as possible, that's probably inevitably going to happen. But let's go back to the tennis this week um, because you know Djokovic looking in good form, but we had. Daniel Medvedev against Sasha Zverev um, on Monday evening. And, you know, these two players met uh, a few weeks ago in the Paris final, which was a three-setter. But this time round, Medvedev um, defeated Zverev in straight set 6-3, 6-4. bit close early on. Um, you know, I think the first seven games they they took around <laughs> yeah, 40 was, minutes uh, yeah <laughs> so oh my god it was so it was so odd because i thought just kind of looking at tv i felt like the court was playing quicker than in paris but i don't know what happens but i think medvedev acknowledged it when they both got on a court they could just trade rallies with each other to to no end and um you know, I think, you know, they're obviously kind of very imposing on the court and they're just able, I think, just to get just get the ball back in play. And um, yeah, it was a real uh, a real attritional affair, I think, to begin with, with, you know, Medvedev coming out on top. And uh, yeah, it, I mean, he's he he has found his mojo again, hasn't he? Because he won the Paris Masters coming into this event. I thought Zverev was going to get his own back personally. But yeah, Medvedev very 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 accomplished and possibly the greatest thing Kim was that he he threw in an he threw in an underarm serve I knew you were going to mention that Joel (laughs) you love an underarm serve (laughs) did you see (laughs) on uh on Instagram uh you know I noticed that Bublik and Kyrgios um proponents of the underarm serve were like welcome welcome to the club it was like he's one of he's one of them now yeah I mean he did it at 4-3 at 30 all in the second set um you know which was potentially um you know a critical point it could have could have thrown up a uh a, a break point to Zverev if he'd uh, have messed up the underarm serve, but uh, it paid off. And what I liked is uh, at the end of the point, Medvedev said sorry to Zverev. Um, and I, I think that was because of the underarm serve. And I thought, oh, <laughs> that's very British of you to be apologising for like he was, everything. He acknowledging it was an underhand tactic, well, but he was still going to employ it anyway. But is it underhand? I feel like more and more players are doing it now. And I think it's becoming more and more, you know, legitimate but but anyway I mean, was so far behind i mean he was very far behind yeah. the baseline that's why i think it was le- like legitimate but he, he's not really it remains to be seen do you think that's a one-off or do you think he's gonna one per match i mean why why not throw in one per match if if you want to adopt a you know a new a new serve tactic um i mean zverev will be hoping you know talking about serves that he'll be that he'll be able to serve better against schwartzman tomorrow because you know zverev had quite a number of double faults you know he he served two in a row to give away that kind of crucial break in the first set 
and his second serve was was quite poor yesterday as well so he'll be looking to kind of get back on track with his with his serve going you know into the match against Schwartzman uh, which I think is tomorrow evening oh no tomorrow afternoon sorry um but yeah I mean obviously Zverev as well we can't really not talk about um you know the ATP who have finally come out with a statement um acknowledging the allegations of domestic violence against Sasha Zverev uh, you know we were waiting wait, yeah finally uh, you know we were waiting with sort of bated breath what would the ATP say what are they going to do because it had kind of just been radio silence up till this point um now the ATP they don't have like a specific abuse policy um but they've they've come out basically with a statement, um, which is, I guess it's quite a predictable statement. You know, they, they say that they fully condemn any form of violence or abuse. We expect all members of the tour to do the same and to refrain from any conduct that is violent, abusive, etc. Um, but they do go on to say, in circumstances where allegations of violence or abuse are made against any member of the tour, legal authorities investigate and due process is applied. We then review the outcome and decide the appropriate course of action. Otherwise, we are unable to comment further on specific allegations. So basically, they're saying if there's no kind of court case or legal proceedings, you know, happening, then the ATP aren't going to do anything. Um, they can't get involved. They're not going to comment on it unless there's sort of, you know, actual, um, you know, a court case going on, for example. Um I mean, what do you make of that? I know on social media, there's been quite a lot of mixed opinions, as can be expected. But I mean, what's your take on that, Joel? It's tricky because, you know, we've already kind of, you know, had the story from uh, Sharipova kind of saying that she's not going, she's given the impression she's not going to kind of pursue this in a court of law. So, you know, already instantly in my head, does that mean, you know, the ATP, you know, absolutely kind of can't, won't get involved because, you know, there's not going to be that, that route doesn't look like it's going to be taken. But then at the same time, I think it's Im- important to recognise it can, and acknowledge that, particularly with, I think, domestic violence in these sorts of uh, situations, you know, the legal sort of route isn't, I don't think, isn't necessarily kind of the be all end all in sort of, you know, action taken. And the fact that it's out there kind of in social media, I don't think means that, the ATP can still just kind of sit by and kind of not do anything about it. And I think the fact that the, the, this took so long, you know, it took kind of two weeks from, you know, to release a statement. It just shows that I think there's just this overarching sort of theme of like unwillingness, I think, to to get involved. Maybe on their side, they're perhaps not sure how you know much to get involved. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have an answer because what 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 do you do? You know, what would be an appropriate um, punishment? You know, to give someone. Um, mm. I mean, <laughs> listeners, answers on a postcard because it's a very you know sensitive issue, and um, I just yeah, I, I I'm glad that they finally come out with something, but you know, they should have really done this straight away to kind of. I think the delay, you know, just makes them look, you know, bad um, at the end of the day. But I totally also understand that, like, they don't have a team of, um, I mean, they do have a legal team, obviously, in the ATP, but they're not, you know, criminal justice experts. So they're not, you know, it's not really their, I know I've said this before, and I don't want this to come across the wrong way or anything, but 
is it really like the job of a sporting body to get involved in domestic matters in a legal perspective, you know? Um, but then if they're wanting to enact some kind of punishment, what is the appropriate course of action for that? You know, is it a year's ban from the tour? Is it, um, you know, removal of prize money? I mean, it's in uh, perhaps we should really, I know, um, Olga Sharipova has said that she her motivation was to kind of get her message out there to help others in a similar situation. So if she's not wanting to pursue it legally, you know, what does she want to to happen to, to Zverev, you know, in terms of his career? Mm. Has she kind of said anything? Maybe at the end of the day, it should come down to what she wants um, or what she feels is is the right course of action um, to give her more agency in the issue. But yeah, it, it's a tricky one, um, isn't it? And um, I can kind of see various aspects of it. And I, I, there's also aspects I'm not able to see because I'm not very experienced in this issue. And I totally, you know, accept that. So, yeah. It just feels like, you know, just based on this kind of statement alone, it just feels like there's a, a, relu- a reluctance um, mm. from the ATP side to do kind of to do much really and that just doesn't it just doesn't look good um you know with such a with such a serious issue and um and yeah it's yeah it's 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 really it's a it's a really tricky one but um you know we'll we'll have to kind of see how it goes on i think the most i think the most important thing is that you know this issue with the fact that you know the season is ending let's just hope this kind of issue i don't think goes away because the season finishes I think it you know it should kind of carry on in terms of we need to have some sort of finality to it and hopefully that finality can be reached I mean do you think Schwartzman's got a good chance against Zverev tomorrow I, I think he's I think he's in with the shot I think Zverev is a bit off the boil like he was mm. um in the latter part of the match yesterday and with his serve I think you know Schwartzman could 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 grab a win there I agree. I I don't. I you know. I think you know. Schwartzman and Rublev have both come into this for the event for the first time. Rublev, I think, understandably looked nervous. I think Schwartzman doesn't look nervous. I don't think. Uh, I, I think he's excited to kind of play and and be there. And you know, he's playing a very good level of tennis for you know for him. Um, and I certainly think yeah, he could have the tools to kind of challenge Zverev however I'm completely aware I said that Zverev would come in come through in this group so <laughs> well he still could he's still got you know two matches he could do that I mean what do you reckon about Djokovic Medvedev I mean I'm gonna go Novak but I think it could be three sets I think Djokovic will win that I think he looked I think he's had a perfectly easy sort of uh run up with the kind of that Schwartzman win and I think yeah he'll, he should be able to should be able to defeat Medvedev. I think the question is is whether Medvedev can raise his game even higher to compete with with Djokovic. Um, that remains to be seen. But um, it's fascinating because, yeah, as I said, Medvedev's found his mojo. So who knows? Who knows whether he can um, defeat Djokovic? But it certainly, I think, should be a very tasty affair. 
Exactly. And and let's have a have a look at the doubles, Joel, because uh we've had group Mike Bryan playing uh today and Sunday, so they've they've kind of got through two of their matches and um Kubot and Mello have lost both of theirs, so they're out. Um and Kulhoff and Mektich have won both of theirs, so they're through. Um which means that it comes down to a final match against uh between Ram and Salisbury and Kravitz and Mees, your favourites, Joel. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed for, you know, for Britain, for the, for Joe Salisbury for that one. But, um, yeah, it's been some really, some good, good matches, um, in the doubles so far. And, and group Bob Bryan, uh, you know, they've, they've only played once, but, um, a predictable win, I suppose, for Pavic and Suarez and, uh, also a win for Granolas and Zabios. So, um, maybe Marcel will, will capture this title again. I have to say, you know, I do like the doubles, but Granolas and Zabios, I feel like they've had a very um, under the radar season to to be in the top eight um, in the race. They've done pretty well because um, I, I wasn't really following them much this year or, you know, that pairing. But um, of course, some of the top doubles players actually aren't, aren't here, you know, Mahu and Herbert. Um, you know, they, they, they weren't able to, to qualify as a, as a team. So, um, it's a bit, you know, they're, they're defending champions. So it's a bit, bit strange this year, but, um, we will keep you up to date with that on Friday when we, when we next do our catch up, um, along with all the singles action, of course. But Joel, we've got a few other things to touch upon today, haven't we? Because over the weekend, we had a few other results from the ATP and WTA tour and they, they were the final events, um, you know, bar, bar this week, um, on, on both respective tours and we had a maiden title didn't we yeah we did uh in Sophia Yannick Sinner who yeah we were we were sensing we were sensing it weren't we that he could be in line for his first career ATP singles title and he's gone and done it he defeated Vasit Pospisil in the final really tight match um final set tie break uh you feel like for Sinner this will be the first of many ATP titles and you know the fact that you know last year you know what he was in the next gen you know, next gen finals putting himself kind of on the map and now he's just kind of made that progression this season with his first ATP title yeah it's just i mean it's just really impressive the fact that he's only 19 years old um and winning titles on the ATP tour it bodes you know it bodes well for the future and and who knows maybe we'll see him maybe we'll see him come in the the ATP finals next season what what do you think well they're, they're in italy next year so that would be pretty nice wouldn't it he'll be <laughs> back in his home country because they're going to turin um yeah i mean he is breaking records that you know if you look at other players who have broken similar records you know they're pretty much like the great players um you know he's the youngest um atp tour titleist since i think nishikori in 2008 um he's already the youngest player in the top 100 he's going up to 37 in the rankings. Um, well, he, he is now 37 in the rankings. Um, and I guess it was only a matter of time. You know, he's been doing well recently, you know, got to the course of the French semis, um, in Cologne one, I believe it was. And yeah, it was a tight match against Pospisil. It was a, we won it, you know, in a last set tie break. Um, but, you know, I watched that last set tiebreak and, you know, Sinner really upped his level and was a lot more, you know, aggressive. And I think he deserved to win the match. Um, he really went off the boil in the second set. And I think maybe the occasion got to him slightly, you know, the thought of 
of winning his first title on the tour. But, you know, he pulled it together and he got over the finish line. And I think, yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited about Sinner. I think he is the one player that um, out of the real young kind of cohort of of players that I've seen that really, um, I just love his demeanour on court. He's so calm. He's so composed, um, like 90% of the time. <laughs> and I just think there's just something about him that I'm, that makes me want to watch him. Um, I can't quite put my finger on it. I just think he's got that, you know. Well, don't worry, Kim, because I feel like he's going to be around on the tour for the next decade or so. Decade yeah, plus. So, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll see how he gets on. Um, yeah, gets on next season. I've definitely got an eye on him. Um, just quickly, moving on to Linz, we had uh, we had the battle of the, the doubles pair. We had the battle of Sabalenka and Mertens doubles partners Sabalenka coming out on top 7-5-6-2 her third title of the season Sabalenka has been in storming storming form really since uh well since since that crazy match in Ostrava where she was love six love four down to Cerebus Tormo um she's yeah she's she's had a a very very productive end to the to the season yeah two titles in a row i think it's her third of the year and obviously it's been a weird year so that makes it all the more impressive and i loved joel in the trophy ceremony when they were you know had their both of their you know winners and, and runners-up trophy they they jumped um <laughs> for the cameras like as if they you know won the doubles together and i thought that was so nice to see <laughs> i saw on uh, on twitter as well i think one of i think I think it was Sabalenka tweeted Merton saying we can still be friends or Aww. something along that line. So <laughs> I do like, I do like that sort of, uh, you know, they're doubles partners, but at the same time, yeah, they're just having a bit of fun in, in the final. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, um, you know, it was a straight sets final, seven, five, six, two, you know, Merton's is, you know, not, I think on the same caliber as Sabalenka when it comes to, um, playing, you know, your best tennis, you, you're going to go with Sabalenka to, to kind of win that one, you know, sheer power and aggression alone. Um, but yeah, it was a, you know, good final week for the WTA tour and we have no more events, uh, from them until 2021. So, um, I think that draws us to a close, doesn't it, Joel? We'll be back on Friday to, uh, to continue our, our roundup of the, I was going to say World Tour finals then. It's not, is it? The ATP finals. Can you tell Andy Murray that on, <laughs> on Prime coverage? Well, um, yeah. I mean, any listeners having a go at us saying the World Tour finals, I noticed that Andy Murray said it on the Prime coverage. And I was it's like, just oh. got such a good ring to it. <laughs> but if he's allowed to say it, then we are. So there we go. Um, but yeah, we'll be back on Friday, won't we, Joel? Yeah, well, we will be back for another group stage catch up on Friday and looking ahead to the weekend and the semi-finals action as well. So I hope you can join us for that. Um, in the meantime, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Castbox, Stitcher, wherever you listen to us, make sure you click that subscribe button to stay up to date with us. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and comment if you enjoy the show. And you can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email the show at passingshotpod at gmail.com. Do get in touch. We love to hear all your thoughts and your feedback and your comments. So, yeah, definitely give us a shout. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you all.
Yes. And as I said, we will be back Friday catching up on all the group stage action. In the meantime, I uh, just want to remind listeners that we will be after this season launching our very first crowdfunding campaign for the Passing Shot 2021. Exciting times, Kim. There's going to be rewards available. For us, it's very much a part of the next step of the podcast. We've done a little announcement podcast for it. So if you just kind of scroll back a couple of episodes, you can listen to a bit more kind of detail on the uh, crowdfunding campaign, but we will be launching it next week. So look out for that as well if you want to support the show. Um, but for now, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of The Passing Shot. We'll be back on Friday and uh, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.